I invite you to open with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 1. While you're turning there, I want to tell you very briefly about my most memorable birthday ever. My most memorable birthday ever and the most unique birthday present I've ever received. It was my 28th birthday and we had been living as a family in the Philippines for about a year. And I remember so vividly the week leading up to that birthday as well because we received news that a typhoon was coming our way. Now, typhoons are kind of strange and bizarre to us. It's in faraway lands, it seems. But a typhoon is very simply a hurricane in the Pacific Ocean. So those are not as far into us here. We, we know that people not very far from us on the Gulf Coast and up the East Coast have have experienced these terrible hurricanes, all right? So a week before, we're, we're living on this island nation in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and we're told a typhoon is coming. Now, here we were, rookie missionaries. We didn't know what was happening. And we were like, okay, where do we hide? What do we do? And everyone around us said, well, you just tie everything down, <laughs> close your door, make sure your windows are closed, and just hold on tight and pray. And so I thought, surely there's more to it than that. But that was really all there was to it. So we braced ourselves all week long and were praying fervently. And as we prayed, the more we prayed, the stronger, prayed, the, stronger the storm got, in fact. So we see this thing coming. By the time it hit land, the day before my birthday, it was as strong as a Category 4 hurricane. This was not a small storm. And let me tell you, like, sitting there in the bed that night with Cherie and the kids were all huddled up. There is nothing that will ever erase the memory from your mind of the sound of a coconut hitting your tin roof at about 80 miles an hour. <laughs> I still remember that horrible sound, right? And it lasts for hours. All night long, this thing is ripping through our little village there. And I wake up on my birthday, my 28th birthday, and I walk outside the house and it is just absolute disaster. Trees are down everywhere. Many of the people in our community, their homes had been destroyed. We had a, a, a tree that had fallen on our house, in fact. And all we had, we didn't have chainsaws. So all day on my birthday, I had a machete. We call it a bolo. And I'm out there chopping up trees with a bolo uh, in the front yard there. It was a memorable birthday. And here's what happened. I forgot about my birthday altogether during that day, right? I had, was taking care of my family, uh, serving our community, all these things. But we went back and we're checking on the community. And we go back to one of our friends. His name is Gus. We go to check on Gus at his house, one of my best friends while we were in the Philippines. And Gus comes out and there's trees down all in the yard there. And he walks out of the house. He's holding something behind his back. And he walks up to me and he said, Pastor, happy birthday. And he hands me three Reese cups with a little yellow ribbon tied around it and a little card. Now, I know you're like, man, Reese cups, what a gift, right? And listen, when you're in the jungle and Reese cups, the closest one, it's your favorite candy in the world for one thing. By the way, that is my favorite candy in the world. You put them in the freezer, they're just right, okay? And so my favorite candy in the world and the closest Reese cups were going to be about three hours away. And so Gus was in the city about a month earlier, and he had thought even then about my birthday coming up, and he bought those three Reese cups. And on my birthday, in the middle of all this suffering and disaster all around us, he blessed me with those three Reese cups. Now, they didn't make the suffering go away, right? They, still, throughout that day, I'm munching on the Reese cups, and I'm chopping up trees with the bolo. The suffering did not go away, but it was a blessing. It was a unique gift in the time of suffering. 
Church, can I tell you this? The big idea as we work through this passage this morning, God uniquely provides for his people in suffering. God uniquely provides for his people in suffering. I emphasize uniquely there for a reason. Because here's the reality. If we're not careful, when we're walking through hard times and challenges, the only provision we really care about in that moment is for God to just make it right and fix it. God, if, if you're walking through cancer or some horrible disease, the only way, if we're not careful, the only way that we think that God is going to provide for us and bless us in suffering is if he just takes the cancer away. Or maybe you're walking through financial hardship and challenges and, and really the bottom is just falling apart at, at your house and, and things are really not looking good financially. The only blessing that you can imagine in that is if God would just make it right. If he would pay that bill. If he would take care of that rent payment. If he would provide food on the table. But here's the truth, church. All throughout scripture, we see that the promise is not that he's going to just make it right this side of heaven. But what he does do for his people is he uniquely provides for them in the middle of suffering. With that in mind, would you stand with me and honor the reading of God's word? 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to read all 14 verses this morning. If your legs get tired, go ahead and have a seat. That'll be fine, but I'll try to read as quickly as possible, okay? But we're going to read this whole chapter. I want you to hear the whole thing in context. Peter writes, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the blessing of your word today. Thank you for providing for us in seasons of suffering, even if it is unique provision. Lord, I pray that we will see in your word that these blessings you give us, Lord, it is 
for your glory and our good. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll challenge us this morning, encourage us, and commission us as, commission us as your people. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So we're closing up and wrapping up this series through 1 Peter. The, the overarching theme has been that, that we are living as exiles, right? And we are living in a strange land that increasingly, day after day, even hour by hour, it seems, is becoming even more strange. And God has expectations of his people. We've walked all the way through this letter, and we've been challenged, no doubt. But we've also been encouraged. So Peter really sums up everything he's been talking about in this final chapter by telling us, there are unique provisions for God's people in the middle of suffering. Again, lay aside every other understanding you may have of how God is supposed to maybe provide for you in suffering and instead embrace this morning his unique provision. So three ways that he provides for his people. We look at the first four verses there of chapter 5 and we see this first truth. God provides pastors to shepherd the church through suffering. God provides pastors to shepherd the church through suffering. I'm going to be honest before we look at these four verses. There has not been a more personally challenging passage of Scripture that I have studied and prepared to preach to you than these first four verses of chapter 5. We may get to verse 5. I'm not sure, okay? We may save it for next week because it may take a minute to get through these first four. The reason being is because I want you to understand very clearly, with absolute sincerity, listen carefully, I do not feel qualified to share these four verses with you. I do not feel worthy to tell you this morning what God expects of a pastor. As I work through these four verses, over and over again, God reminded me of what a blessing it is to be your pastor. What a joy it is to be your pastor. I've, we've been here about a year now. Yesterday, we had this wonderful celebration with you as we, we had finished seminary and moving into this new chapter here with you at the church. Went home and I opened card after card after card and read letter after letter. And what blessed me most was not the gift that might have been in some of those cards, but over and over again, seeing the word pastor. Over and over again, reading the words, thank you for being our pastor. Thank you for coming here. Or even on the front of the card, it just saying, Pastor Jared and family. Church, listen. I don't take that lightly. And so as I read over those things and was reflecting about these four verses here, these first four verses of chapter 5, reminded of what God expects of a pastor. I want you to understand that there are many men much more worthy than myself to share with you these expectations. And so I plead for, with you for your graciousness and your kindness as we continue to serve here. We love you, and I pray that as you listen to the exposition here, that you hear my heart most importantly. In a world of job descriptions and culturally imposed expectations, and unfortunately regarding pastors, we tend to overlook the intangibles of what it means to be a pastor. Unfortunately, the church, by and large, they set expectations on a pastor that are sometimes unrealistic and sometimes very unbiblical. Things that cannot be measured. The things we're going to look at this morning, these five expectations, aren't going to be covered in an interview. 
There's no way that you can ask a question of a young man or an older man and say, tell me about this in your life. They could say anything. This is something that is observed and measured over time. And we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But understand that these intangibles, if you will, they're not going to sound common to you. It's going to sound a bit strange, perhaps. But I want you to see, as Peter begins in verse 1, notice what he says. He says, I exhort the elders among you. What he's saying here is these four verses in particular, this is specifically for elders. Elders is another word throughout the New Testament that refers to pastors. This is his expectation of what a pastor should be, God's expectation of a pastor. So there are five of these. The first one we see in verse 1 is this. God expects pastors to love Jesus more than ministry. God expects pastors to love Jesus more than ministry. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ. Before he ever talks about anything else, before he ever lays out this agenda, if you will, for pastors and what God expects, he says, listen, I have witnessed the sufferings of Christ and everything is foundational in understanding who Jesus is. Understand, church, that before I love you well, before any pastor can love a church well, he must love Jesus well. He must fall deeply in love with the God of the Bible and love him well. Spending significant time devotionally with growing to know who his Savior is. And can I tell you this? This is not just an expectation of pastors. Church, if you are going to serve God well, if we are going to serve God well, we must love Jesus well. That's the only way it works. But then we'll get to verse 2 and we see this second expectation. God expects pastors to feed his sheep. God expects pastors to feed his sheep. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 2. Very simply, it's the only imperative statement we find in these four verses. He says, shepherd God's flock among you. Shepherd God's flock among you. So turn back with me, if you will, to John chapter 21. John chapter 21 and verse 15. I want you to understand Peter's context here and his understanding of what it meant to shepherd the people of God. Peter had a conversation at the end of John's gospel with Jesus shortly after his resurrection. Just a little while, a few days before that, Peter had denied knowing Jesus three different times. And so we get to verse 15 of John 21 and we read this account. It says, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Notice that question. That's foundational what we just looked at, right? He says, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these other people? Listen, you must love me first. So Peter had the right answer. He says, yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. Verse 16, a second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. In verse 17, he asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Since Peter was grieved, he was a little bit annoyed, actually, that three different times Jesus asked the same question. So notice what he says. Do you, he said he's grieved because he asked this question, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus simply says again, feed my sheep. The expectation of a shepherd of God, the person who is shepherding a church and pastoring God's flock, is to feed the sheep faithfully with the word of God. 
Every single week, you should expect as a church that you will have a steady diet of the Word of God only. Doesn't matter how creative we might be or how we may have programs and all these different agendas and renovations and all these things that are happening here at the church. That's all well and good. But listen, every single week as a church, you should expect a pastor to feed you the Word of God. But we see this third expectation. God expects pastors to serve with joy. He expects pastors to serve with joy. Notice what it says in verse 2. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. It's very interesting the way that Peter describes this. It was obvious that during this particular time in the church's history, there might have been pastors extorting something from the church, serving out of greed, serving out of a desire for personal gain furthering themselves. But I want you to see a couple of things here. Notice that it's God's flock among you that they are called to shepherd. In other words, he's telling these pastors that are pastoring these various churches all throughout Asia Minor, he's saying, listen, God has put you where you are for a reason. This is the flock you are to shepherd. These are the people you are to love. You are not to have a desire to be somewhere else always. No, you are to have a desire to remain rooted and planted where you are in love and shepherd God's church. But then also he says, do it eagerly. In other words, do it with joy, enthusiasm, and excitement, as if it's a blessing, because it certainly is to shepherd God's people. But look at this fourth expectation. God expects pastors to be examples of godliness. We see that in verse 3. Notice what he says. He says, not lording it over those entrusted you. In other words, don't lord over God's people the opportunity you have to shepherd them, but being examples to the flock, he says. He lays out for these pastors. He says, listen, the expectation for you is to be an example of godliness at all times. Well, Paul clarifies this back in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And that's jotted down there in your notes. Make note of that because there are some very clear expectations of godliness. Let me read this to you. It'll be on the screen as well, I believe. It says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer or an elder or a pastor, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, Not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. God help me. That was a joke. (laughs) That was awkward. You didn't catch that. Verse 5, if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? Listen, God expects pastors to be examples of godliness. And Paul clarifies here these measurements of godliness, these very tangible ways that you ought to be able to identify in God's pastor for you what godliness should look like. But notice this fifth expectation as we get to verse 4. God expects pastors to serve for his glory only. God expects pastors to serve for his glory only. I love what it says in verse 4. It says that when the chief shepherd appears, in other words, when Jesus returns, the true shepherd of the church and God's flock, when he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Notice this crown of glory does not appear on this earth 
It does not appear miraculously out of thin air after you've been at a church for five years and God's doing great things. No, it is an unfading crown of glory that will never tarnish. It will never go away. Why? Because it is in glory. It is in eternity. Because a pastor should serve for God's glory only. So, practically, this is what this looks like in the church. And you could even say it's what it should look like in this church. Notice this. It is reasonable for the church to hold the pastor accountable in these specific expectations. It is reasonable for the church to hold a pastor accountable, listen carefully, in these specific expectations. Remember, we started out this morning talking about how Unfortunately, there are expectations that may be unrealistic and maybe even unbiblical placed on a pastor. But in these specific areas, it is reasonable and I expect you to hold me accountable as your pastor. Now, disclaimer, we're in community with one another. That means as we are in community, that means also you are inviting me into that very same relationship with you. And so as I have an opportunity to shepherd you, you hold me accountable to these specific things. Am I feeding you God's word faithfully week after week? Am I following what it says there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, these expectations of godliness, all these things that we've talked about? But also know that you as God's people, we're in that relationship together. I love this second practical application. Eat when the shepherd feeds you. Eat when the shepherd feeds you. Let me illustrate this to maybe clarify it. Y'all ever met a kid that just won't eat? Parents, you know, right? Your kid wants one thing to eat and one thing to eat only. And if you put anything else in front of them, guess what? They're going to hold out like it's the end of the world waiting on that one thing. They won't eat no matter how much you put in front of them. Listen carefully. If we're getting a steady provision of a diet of God's word week after week after week, eat it and consume it. Apply it to our lives. This is an expectation of God's people. But finally, and perhaps most intimately, trust the pastor who God has called to walk with you through suffering. Trust the pastor who God has called to walk with you through suffering. I'm going to get very personal for just a moment. I understand because, of course, prior to coming here as your pastor, I research the history of a church, not to determine if this is where God was calling us, but to better understand where he was calling us. I want you to hear that. I'm going to state the obvious. I understand that there is a rich history, a long history of many, many, many pastors who have stood in this pulpit here. Over 15 years, the last 15 years, there's been seven pretty rapid turnover let's state the obvious and I understand that as we head into the second year of being here trust does not come easy so I say with absolute humility and sincerity I treasure your trust I treasure your love I don't take it lightly and so I simply plead with you based upon the authority of what we've looked at already this morning. That is, I have an opportunity to shepherd you through times of suffering in your personal life that you will trust me with that opportunity. 
those intimate moments that you walk through as an individual or a family, I want the opportunity, I plead with you for the opportunity to walk with you through those things. And a practical, practical point of application is that you also extend that trust. Here's what this looks like. Over the next few weeks and months, you will receive a phone call from me. And I'm going to ask for a very simple invitation. I'm not going to barge my way in your house. We're going to plan it out and make sure it works as a convenient time for you. But I'm going to ask for an opportunity to come visit with you. To sit down, hey, we're going to shoot the breeze and we're going to have a good time getting to know each other better. But more than that, as we're now entering this second year of being with you, I want to know where you are spiritually. Your walk with Jesus. I want to hear your testimony of salvation. I want to hear about your relationship with the church. I want to hear about how you feel God has gifted you to serve in the church. And these will be very intimate conversations. And so simply, very practically this morning, when I call you and ask for that, don't think you're in trouble. Very simply, I want the opportunity to sit down in fellowship with you. And so extend that opportunity to me, I pray, and trust me with those occasions to walk with you through suffering. So God provides pastors to shepherd the church through suffering. I know we've been speaking for 25 minutes. We'll move quickly as we can through these next two points. We get to verses 5 through 11. We see that God provides his might for us to overcome the evil one in suffering. God provides his might for us to overcome the evil one in suffering. Look particularly at verse 6 of chapter 5. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This is no small thing that Peter points out here. Back in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is is speaking to, to the Lord. And God is commissioning Moses to go into Egypt and to free his people as his instrument, his hand among his people. And notice what the Lord says to Moses in verses 19 and 20. He says, this is the Lord speaking. He says, however, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand, he says, and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that he will let you go. Did you catch that? God says, after I stretch out my hand, my mighty hand is what is going to deliver my people. Why is this significant? Well, listen, Peter, when he talks about this again, this is what he had in mind, church. He knew these stories. He knew this history of God's people. And listen, he says to you and I and to these people reading this letter, he says, that same hand of God is at your disposal today. That same hand of God that delivered people then can also deliver you and walk with you through suffering However, we forget that we have this same great mighty hand walking with us through the wilderness of our suffering. We undermine his might, we ignore his might, and as a result in our desire for self-sufficiency, we overlook the provision of God's mighty hand in suffering. So, verses 6 through 10, we see some practical implications and ways that we can push back against that tendency. Notice in verse 6, we see that we need to know that God's timing is perfect. We've got to know that God's timing is perfect. If we're going to trust his mighty hand in the middle of suffering, we've got to know that his timing is perfect. I'm reminded of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. You'll remember they were standing before Nebuchadnezzar. 
Nebuchadnezzar was about to throw them into the fiery furnace. And they very boldly, perhaps arrogantly, they look at Nebuchadnezzar and they say, listen, we know that God's going to deliver us from that furnace. Then they went on to say this, but even if he does not, we will not bow before your idols. You catch that? But even if he does not, why would they not? Listen, because if he didn't deliver them, what would happen? They were going to burn up. And they trusted so significantly in God's deliverance. They said, listen, even if this side of eternity, we're not delivered, we're still going to trust that his timing is perfect. Listen, God walking you through suffer- with you through suffering, God providing for us in the middle of suffering, it does not mean that he makes it all go away. But it does mean that he's with us. So know that his timing is perfect, even if it means that timing is in eternity. But look at verse 7. We need to intentionally choose not to worry. Intentionally choose not to worry. It says there that we're to cast all of our cares on him. That phrase, casting our cares on him, that literally means you're going to throw your burdens at Jesus. Intentionally understanding that there's no reason for you to worry. Worry is very simply a slap in the face of God's sovereignty. When we worry, even innocently worry, we may think, we are undermining the sovereignty of God and his might in our lives. We see thirdly in verse 8 that if we're going to continue to push back against this tendency to not recognize the provision of God's might, we see that we need to remember that the real enemy of both us and God is the devil. We need to remember who the real enemy is. Notice what it says. Be sober-minded and be alert. That phrase, be sober-minded, simply means be level-headed. Don't overreact. If you're like me, you do that a lot. But don't overreact. Be alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. God very clearly tells us there that even in your suffering, remember who the real enemy is. It's not that person slandering you. It's not that person that seems to be dismantling your life. It's not an enemy in a faraway nation even. There is but one enemy, and he is the devil. And then finally in verses 9 and 10, we're pushing back against this tendency to ignore God's might. If we're going to do that, we have to have faith that God will do what he has said he will do. Have faith that God will do what he has said he will do. Look at verse 9. It says, resist him, meaning resist the devil, firm in the faith. Church, the call to resistance, listen, this is on the slide. The call to resistance does not summon believers to do Herculean acts on God's behalf. Believers are not encouraged to gather all of their resources to do great works for God. No, resisting the devil means that believers remain firm in their faith. That is, they trust in their God. If we're going to resist the evil one, it doesn't mean that we have to somehow conjure something up within ourselves to resist him. No, we simply trust that God will do what he has said he will do. What does it say that he will do? Look at verse 10. It says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, that is very significant. This is something God is going to do. What's he going to do? He's going to restore. He's going to establish. He's going to strengthen. And he's going to support you after you have suffered a little while. Even if you're suffering, guess what? God's going to come through. Even if suffering doesn't end this side of heaven, guess what? God is going to come through. We need to trust, church, that God's going to do what he says he will do. 
And finally, as we look at verses 12 through 14, we see that God provides his grace to encourage us in suffering. God provides his grace to encourage us in suffering. Again, we tend to think that our only encouragement in the middle of our suffering is that our suffering will end, and preferably that it will end soon. But instead, look with me at verse 12. Peter is concluding his letter, and he says, Through Silvanus, or maybe your translation says through Silas, a faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. God does not promise that suffering will end soon. Instead, what God promises is he will give us his grace to encourage us in suffering. Three truths about God's grace and we'll be through. In verse 12, we see that we should embrace what is the true grace of God and be careful of what that which is a counterfeit of grace. Understand what the true grace of God is. We've talked about it over and over again this morning. It means that God very simply meets you in suffering, walks with you through suffering, even if suffering does not end soon. But that is the true grace of God. Why do I warn you about a counterfeit grace? Because Peter does as well. He says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And he says it emphatically. Even then, just as now, there is a counterfeit of grace being perpetuated from pulpits across America. It's called the prosperity gospel. You might have seen it on TV or read about it. Here's what it says. You do good things, you get good things from God. That's not true. The counterfeit gospel, the counterfeit grace is simply this. That if you give to the church financially, that God will deliver you from suffering. I tell you very plainly this morning, that is not true grace. True grace is walking humbly before a mighty God and trusting that he is with you in the middle of suffering. Notice in verse 13 we see this. That grace is best experienced in community. Grace is best experienced in community. There's some really strange wording in verse 13. I want to explain it very quickly. Peter says, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you greetings. Now, this is not some strange woman in Babylon, okay? I know that's what it sounds like. Understand that even when Peter was writing this, Babylon was gone. It didn't exist. But very simply, we see over and over again in the New Testament that the church is referred to as what? The bride of Christ Jesus. And so playing on that imagery here, Peter says again, she who is in Babylon, meaning the bride of Christ in Babylon, the bride of Christ experiencing persecution just like you, they send you greetings. Why? It's significant. When we walk through suffering and God provides his grace, we do that in community, and not in isolation. And then finally in verse 14, we see this very important truth about grace. Grace only benefits those in Christ. Grace only benefits those who are in Christ. Peter says, peace to all of you who are in the last two words of his letter. He says, in Christ. 
I want to close this sermon series, this message this morning by pleading with you to be found in Christ. Everything we've talked about in the ways that God uniquely provides for his people in suffering, every challenge that has been issued, none of it makes sense unless we are found in Christ. Only those walking with Jesus treasure God's provision of a pastor. Only those walking with Jesus treasure the provision of his might. And certainly only those walking with Jesus treasure the provision of his grace. Those not found in Christ, guess what? They want a quick fix. And only if God makes it right then and there, only if God answers that prayer then and there in the way they had in mind, only then are they satisfied. But God's people, they have peace. They have peace because this provision is good. And so I invite you to know this Christ. I don't know what you're walking through this morning or what you've been walking through for some time now. But very simply, I put before you the grace of God. I put before you the invitation to know him as your savior. I put before you the provision of his mighty hand. That even if this side of heaven, your suffering does not work out. You will have hope in eternity. If you have questions about that, I would love to hear from you. I would love to walk with you through what it means to respond to this grace, to give your life to Jesus. This is a decision you must consciously make to surrender your life to Christ. And it only works that way. Church, thank you so much for your attentiveness this morning. And I pray this, not just this sermon, but this series of sermons has been encouraging to you. I hope it's been practically applicable to you in your life. As you walk through this very strange culture, knowing that God is with us, knowing that he provides for us.